but for the most part, this is really a disease that primary care can embrace and do an excellent job. This is not one that should be an automatic referral to neurology. Welcome to The Curbsiders, an internal medicine podcast where we deconstruct topics in medicine to provide you, the listener, with clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. I'm Dr. Tony Sideri. Hello. On this episode of The Curbsiders, we speak with Dr. Glenn D. Solomon, professor and chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at Wright State University. He also serves as the professor and interim chair of neurology at Wright State University since 2013. Having published more than 100 articles on the topic of headache medicine, Dr. Solomon is a renowned expert known for his expertise in headache medicine and has been a pioneer in this field. He has served as a director of the Headache Medicine Clinic and fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. Notwithstanding, he is board certified in both internal medicine and headache medicine. He is a graduate of Rush University and the Wright Patterson Internal Medicine Residency. On the personal level, he has been a mentor of mine and I am proud to have served under him as a resident. Dr. Solomon, it is a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So how did you end up getting getting to where you are now? To be honest, I've been very blessed, and I've worked very hard to get where I am today. Um, I did my residency in the Air Force. I was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base when the program was in its infancy. I was actually six months into when they created the residency. Uh, I was off cycle and, and joined the residency program. And it, it, towards the end of my internship, I had the opportunity to do a neurology rotation and see a number of young people who had strokes. I had never done research in my life, never had an interest in research, but I asked the question, why are these young people having strokes? Mm. And yeah. looking at the literature, most of the literature came from the third world, and it was most, mostly pericardum strokes were the cause of strokes in the young or other, you know, rare diseases that we just simply don't see in the United States. And so we did a, a, a five-year retrospective of all the people under the age of 40 uh, who had strokes at our institution. And it turned out that roughly a quarter of them had migraine as the cause of their stroke. And we hadn't really seen that in the literature. I was working with another uh, senior resident. Uh, so we wrote it up and submitted it to a meeting, and it actually got accepted at um, the American Headache Society. Uh, fear is a great motivator. We, the, the two of us as residents sort of looked at each other and said, we don't know the first damn thing about migraine, right. and here we're going to present at this national migraine or headache meeting. Uh, we better learn everything we can about headaches so we don't embarrass ourselves. So we started, I mean, as I said, fear is a great motivator. So we read everything we could. And in those days, this was about 1980, 1981, uh, migraine was still considered a disease of vasoconstriction followed by vasodilation. And in those days, there, were a, there was a new class of medication being studied in Europe called the calcium channel blockers. I guess I'm sort of dating myself here. <laughs> Just a little. It's okay. We... They were not yet approved in the United States, and they were being looked at to treat vasospastic angina. And we said, gee, if they prevent spasm in the heart and those blood vessels, maybe it'll work in the brain, so maybe it'll work to prevent migraine and prevent vasospasm. So we did the first work on verapamil in, or calcium channel blockers in migraine, uh, which we published back in 1983. Uh, all this time, my plan was to be a rheumatologist. I had gotten accepted at a fellowship at Johns Hopkins to do a rheumatology fellowship. And the Air Force, in its infinite wisdom, decided they didn't need any rheumatologists, so I wasn't able to go and do my fellowship. And they sent me out as a general internist. Well, they sent me out just about the time that this article got published. And um, it sort of took off, and I it, uh, was published in JAMA, was very highly received, um, you know, got published in all the, the 
summarizing all the important journals like the uh, National Enquirer and Reader's Digest. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, hey, it's the only time I've ever been in the Reader's Digest. Probably the only time Highly I ever will. reviewed. <laughs> um, so uh, I just sort of have kept doing headache work ever since, and it's going on 35 years now, and um, have just continued to do that work. Um, along the way, I uh, after I got out of the Air Force and I spent a couple of years with the Diamond Headache Clinic in Chicago, I moved to the Cleveland Clinic, and early in my career there, they offered me the opportunity to run the third-year medicine clerkship. Um, I think it was because I was a very junior faculty and didn't know enough to say no. Uh, but it was the greatest thing I ever did. I, I absolutely fell in love with medical education and have spent the rest of my life doing that. Um, we started a fellowship program at Headache at Cleveland Clinic. Eventually, I went off to do other things and became a chair of medicine at a community teaching hospital and a program director for the residency and then came to Wright State and have worked as a, the chair of medicine and for a couple of years also as program director. So I guess, you know, the, the advice of how you get to where you are is that, you know, you set your goals fairly high. Uh, you find something that you love in medicine and you stick with it. And, you know, for me, that's really been um, a combination of patient care, research, and medical education. But, you know, in particular, it's really been the education side of things. Um, and, you know, if you, if you catch some good breaks along the way, uh, you can end up doing things that you really love. And, and, again, if you find something that you love in medicine and you stick with it, you've got your dream job. And it sounds like you... Uh, I mean, it sounds like you sort of were in the right place at the right time and recognized the opportunities and just have kind of followed them along. And that's, that's pretty incredible. You know, when, when people make you offer you opportunities, it, it really pays to say yes. Right. Uh, you know, I, I know from my years in the Air Force, they always said never volunteer for anything. Maybe that, and maybe that's good advice, but when people ask you, uh, you know, when a boss asks you to do something, Saying yes really can pay off, and, and it certainly has paid off for me. Yeah. Wow. So you're, you've, you've done all this publishing and everything, and um, one, one of the other things that, that we always are interested in is, is what, what sort of things are you doing now to make sure that you're kind of on top of the things that are coming out uh, in your field? Uh, what, what do you read or sure. what resources do you use? Um, certainly there are two major headache journals, uh, the journal Headache and the journal Cephalalgia. Um, one is from the American um, Headache Society, the other is from the International Headache Society. And I belong, obviously, to both organizations and read those journals. But the thing, one of the things I really like is an app called QXMD, mm -hmm. um, which summarizes the medical literature and... You know, pretty much every day it scans the literature in general internal medicine and in neurology and in headache. And so I find that a great resource to find a lot of the articles that aren't in the, the primary headache journals. So that's really what I do on a daily basis to mm -hmm. keep up. And is, uh, that a, is that QXMD? I have the free app that I use for calculating uh, scores and things, but is that is that a paid app to get oh, the Oh, no, I, I would ne I'm too cheap to ever spend money. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, a, it's a free app. Sounds like some of, the, uh, some of us might have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's a totally free app. It's, it's really one of – I'm not trying to plug anybody, but I, I find it to be a very useful app. And there are a bunch of others that, that also will summarize the literature. I just happen to find that that one um, works the best for me. Right. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's... So in spite of the fact that I can't use Skype, I actually do at least know how to use an app every now and then. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I guess to kind of move move on to like the more, the, the main part of the talk, uh, did you have some learning objectives that like for, for what we plan to cover tonight, which... Um, Preliminarily, we were thinking maybe migraine headaches and chronic tension type headaches, uh, maybe 
maybe some other stuff if you wanted to throw that in. But did you have like learning objectives that you thought were pertinent? Yeah, I think for- the, I think the three things that I would really like to see people get out of this would be a, a simple approach to the diagnosis of headache, um, a rational approach for preventive therapy, and a couple of pearls about avoiding prescribing pitfalls. Yeah, uh, certainly. I think everyone, every one of us, and probably many of our listeners have like cowered in the face of a headache patient, especially a chronic headache patient uh, who tells you they've had headaches for 20 years and they almost challenge you to figure something out for them. And it doesn't get better when you've done this for 30 some odd years. You still get those (laughs) same patients and you still get very anxious when you see those patients. And you mentioned uh, the headache fellowship that you had been part of starting at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, just just for people to get an idea, um, there's not many headache specialists in the country. Is that correct? Uh, there are probably about a thousand mm-hmm. people who are members of the headache association. Um, so no, there's not a huge number of, of people who are truly headache specialists. Right. If you figure out like the number of patients with chronic headaches and the number of specialists, it's like... It's not even close. So that means we are the ones that are going to be treating this. And the reality is that primary care docs are much better able to treat this disease than neurologists. Um, this really is a... This, this is truly a primary care disorder. And for the most part, the drugs that we use are drugs that most primary care docs can be very comfortable with because they're using them for other things. That may, you know, when we talk about some of the newer things coming down the road, that all may change. But for the most part, this is really a disease that primary care can embrace and do an excellent job. This is not one that should be an automatic referral to neurology because A, neurologists hate treating headaches. And B, they're not really good at it. <laughs> uh, I don't want to anger any of my neurology colleagues, but I've kind of noticed that. So uh, you mentioned your, uh, you wanted us to get a simple approach to the diagnosis. So uh, can you kind of shed a little light on that? Or Yeah, I, I think the thing that happens with many physicians when they see a patient with headache is that they overcomplicate their, their thinking about diagnosis. You know, they're worrying about brain tumors and giant cell arteritis, and they're worrying about obscure things that may they may or may not remember from medical school. Ninety-plus percent of all people with headache who will come to see a primary care doc have one of three diagnoses. And in reality, they have one of two diagnoses. <laughs> they either have migraine or they have chronic tension-type headache. Mm-hmm. About one in a thousand headache sufferers will have cluster headache. The reality is cluster headache is pretty easy to diagnose. So if you've ever seen one or you've, you've learned about one or you even just watch a YouTube video of one, you won't ever forget cluster headache. So you really only have to remember two types of headache for the most part. And the difference between migraine and tension type headache and actually, many neurologists don't even break those up anymore. Now they call it all chronic migraine, so you only need to know one kind of headache. <laughs> but I, I don't buy into that. Um, but the reality is one headache is a sick headache, and one headache is a totally bland headache. So if somebody comes in and they have very frequent or constant headaches, and they really don't have any other associated symptoms, they probably have chronic tension-type headache. If, on the other hand, they come in and they have a headache and they're sick with it, there's light bothers them, sound bothers them, they're sick to their stomach, which could be anything from anorexia to throwing up, Um, if they have neurologic symptoms that precede the headache, then pretty much it's migraine. Um, And you really can pretty much divide headache between those two categories. Now, there are a lot of people who have both that, you know, once a week or once a month, they will have a sick headache, and then every day they have this really sort of bland headache. And so you have to take a good history, and you have to let the patient talk, something we're not great at as physicians, 
<laughs> but primary care docs are better than most neurologists at it. And, you know, I, I kid with the residents who work with me because I, I explain to them, I walk into the room, I pull up the chair, and I say to my patient, tell me about your headaches. Yeah. And I just let them talk. And the truth is they give me virtually their whole history. Right. And as I explain to people, I don't get paid by the word. So if all I ever have to say is tell me about your headache and they give me everything I need, that's pretty easy. You know, and I have a template on my electronic health record. And so if they, you know, if there's a question or two that they don't tell me about, fine, I'll ask them a few things. But for the most part, if you just give people a chance to talk, it doesn't take much to decipher between a very bland headache and a headache that somebody's sick with and puts them to bed. The questions that sometimes you have to ask people are, are things like, how many different kind of headaches do you get? Or are all of your headaches really bad headaches? Because people, again, they like to tell you about their worst headache or their most recent headache. And maybe you're forgetting the 90% of the days when they have headache that they're not telling you about it because they're not sick with it. And uh, is there the pathophysiology you sort of mentioned earlier when you were talking about this vasoconstriction, vasodilation thing? Do we understand the pathophysiology? I know I don't fully understand the pathophysiology of migraines and tension type, but is it known yet? Oh, I think it depends who you ask. If you ask me, the answer is no. Um, the, 30 years ago, this was a vascular disease, and we talked about the blood vessels, and we talked about dilation of blood vessels causing migraine. 30 years on, now today we talk about calcitonin gene-related peptide causing vasodilation of blood vessels, and now we're calling it a, neuro a neurological disease because CGRP is a neuropeptide. So if you by that logic, all diseases are basically neurologic diseases because basically muscles, blood vessels, nerves are all controlled by neuropeptides, and I guess that makes everything a neurologic disease. Um, we don't know what triggers the release of the CGRP. Um, we know the CGRP is released. We know that as a neuropeptide, it affects pain pathways as well as affecting blood vessels. Um, so those things we know. Um, we really don't know what the trigger is. We know that there are some genetic factors that are involved. We know that there are things going on in nuclei like the locus ceruleus and other places that, and in the hypothalamus that we think may be the source of the signals that trigger the release of the neuropeptides, but we really don't understand the pathophysiology very well. You know, sort of the, the, the end result, we know that there is release of CGRP and we know there is vasodilation. And the next great advance in migraine therapy will be the CGRP antibodies and the CGRP receptor blockers that are all in development right now. There are four pharmaceutical companies, each with their own uh, take on how they're going to affect CGRP, some with monoclonal antibodies, some with small molecule drugs, some with receptor blockers, but the new therapy will be blocking CGRP. 20 years ago when the triptans came out, almost 30 years ago when the triptans came out, <laughs> uh, in the late 80s when the triptans came out, it was all about serotonin, and it was about serotonin antagonists. So I'm not sure that we've, you know, we, we've picked up a few different neurotransmitters along the way, neuropeptides along the way, but I still don't think we have the answer to migraine yet. The good news is that these new drugs appear to be very effective, and so I think there's a lot of hope for patients, but I don't yet think we have the answer to this problem. And uh, does, but whatever's going on with the stomach during migraines to cause nausea, do you think that interferes with therapy in any way? Uh, yes, that's very real. There, there is a gastroparesis that occurs in a, during 
many people's migraine attacks. And so for a lot of people um, who have a lot of nausea with their migraines, that may be a manifestation of gastroparesis, and oral therapies may not be terribly effective because of the gastroparesis. So for those patients, you've got several alternatives. You can use a drug like metoclopramide to treat the gastroparesis, um, what's nice about metoclopramide is that it's a dopamine-related drug, and it happens to be a relatively effective drug to treat migraine. So metoclopramide can help the nausea and also help the migraine. I usually will combine it with another drug, either a non-steroidal or a triptan, so you get, as I explained to my patients, it's like putting a turbocharger on your medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gets it absorbed more quickly and you get relief of your nausea. Mm-hmm. So that's one alternative. This, the other alternative is to use non-oral uh, medication. So you can use, for example, sumatriptan subcutaneously. You can use sumatriptan or zolmatriptan uh, nasally. Now there are... Um, oh, there's a, a new therapy where you can, where the medicine, assumatriptan is absorbed through the skin with iontophoresis. Mm. They have a battery-powered iontophoretic device that has sumatriptan, and you can absorb it through your skin for a mere $250 a dose. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Um, <laughs> thereabouts. I, mean, I think it was a little more than yeah. me, but uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so yes, there there are alternatives if you have bad gastroparesis, uh, just not if you have gastroparesis and are poor. And and I had heard uh, and I, I I had heard about possible um, use of like some over the counter things like some people you were talking uh, mag oxide not over the counter but some people say that you could use mag oxide with an NSAID and that might have a similar sort of prokinetic effect. I don't know if there's any evidence to that. I've just, I've heard that as like an anecdotal thing. Yeah, that I have not, I have to be honest, I've not heard using mag oxide for that. Okay. Um, but, you know, anything that's prokinetic should work just fine if you combine it with another drug that works for the migraine. Okay. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of thought about magnesium being useful for treating migraine. Mm. The problem is that the mag- if you're using magnesium to um, irritate the stomach, that's usually meaning it's not being absorbed. And if it's not absorbed, it's not going to have an anti-migraine effect. Right. It's basically have its effect on the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, although you probably absorb some of it. But, yeah, I mean, anything that's prokinetic would probably help with the gastroparesis. So aside from prescription medications, is there anything over-the-counter that you think works great for abortive therapy? Yes, I'm a big believer in the proxen sodium, mm-hmm. which I believe. Right. But you have to use what I refer to as industrial strength doses. <laughs> okay. But you can't use what it says on the label, which is one tablet every 12 hours at, uh-huh. I think, 275 milligrams or 250 milligrams. Right. You know, the, uh, the prescription dose or the dose that I usually use for a migraine abortive is 550 milligrams, and then I allow the patient to repeat that in an hour. Okay. So they're getting 1,000-plus milligrams within an hour if uh-huh. they still have a headache after the 550 doesn't work. So that's that's a big dose of a leave, but it's, it's very effective, um, and it's equivalent to what I would do with a prescription. And, again, that's useful if they don't have a lot of GI upset, mm. um, you know, they don't have a lot of the gastroparesis. But I tell most of my patients about that because ideally, if patients are doing well, they sometimes will forget to carry their medicine with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I don't want my patients worrying about headaches all the time. I'd like them not to be thinking a lot about their headaches um, because they're hopefully doing well. And if they get caught somewhere without one, it's nice to know you can go into virtually any gas station in the United States. Mm. you know, any convenience store and pick up a leave and treat your headaches. So I do like to teach my patients about that so that they, that if they're out and about, they don't have to, you know, worry about not having a prescription or worry about the fact that maybe they didn't bring their medication with them, that there are things that they can take. And, you know, the other thing that 
you know, there's an old time therapy is also using caffeine. So, you know, washing down your Aleve with um, something with caffeine, you know, may also give you some additional benefit as well. A lot of people, you know, are preaching to their headache patients to give up caffeine, but caffeine therapeutically, if you're not using it a lot, can be very effective mm -hmm. for a lot of migraine patients. Any uh, non-pharmacologic therapies that you've found to be helpful? Yeah, there are a couple. Uh, I'm a big believer in biofeedback if mm -hmm. one can get it. Uh, it used to be a lot easier, but now insurance companies don't want to pay for it. Uh, but biofeedback can be very effective, and the studies have really shown it's as good as, as taking preventive medication. Uh, so particularly for women of childbearing years, uh, I really like to encourage them to, to do biofeedback, learn how to do biofeedback so that they don't have to be on medications, you know, if they try to become pregnant. Another useful therapy, which I like to think of sort of as the poor man's biofeedback, is guided imagery. Yeah. We did some research on guided imagery back when I was at Cleveland Clinic as an adjunct therapy to our patient, for our patients with chronic tension-type headache, and we clearly saw a benefit. Um, what's nice about guided imagery is you can download apps for free on your cell phone or on your uh, iPad. Um, you can spend 15 or 20 minutes a day practicing it. Um, and it really has no cost. You don't need a prescription. You don't need to see a therapist to learn how to do it. Um, and it can be really pretty effective. So um, now that I find it very difficult to get people to do biofeedback, uh, I do push for, for guided imagery uh, relatively often. Again, particularly women in childbearing years, people who don't want to take medications. Uh, those are some real good alternatives. We also shouldn't forget physical therapy can be very valuable, particularly for the older patient who has chronic tension-type headache. They very often will have it related to some osteoarthritis in their neck, and learning how to do neck-strengthening exercises really can be very beneficial. And I do separate out physical therapy from massage therapy. Everybody feels great after a massage, but if they haven't taught you how to work on your own muscles and strengthen the muscles and improve your range of motion, you know, within a couple of hours, you're back to where you started and you really are not getting any long-term benefit. So I tend to promote, a lot of my patients come in and want me to write them a prescription for a massage. Uh, they're not so thrilled when I say, no, you're going to get physical therapy and they're going to beat you up and you're going to feel worse, but it's over the long haul, you're going to get better. How about acupuncture? There are acupuncture. Migraine is one of the few areas where the NIH has its studies that say that acupuncture helps in chronic headaches. What's interesting is if you actually read the literature about acupuncture and headache, what you find is that sham acupuncture works every bit as well as real acupuncture. Oh, so, so we don't have to get signed off on acupuncture. <laughs> so just sticking needles in people seems to help their headaches. Um, and it sort of doesn't matter where you put the needles or if you know what you're doing or not. Excellent. Um, it works better than putting them on the waiting list for acupuncture. So, I mean, it really is, you know, so again, whether this is placebo effect, I don't know, but... Um, I, uh, not to go off on a big tangent here, but uh, we we do. Uh, I mean, you mentioned placebo before. I think any physician in practice, whether they realize it or not, is is using placebo, and it's probably a pretty significant part of any clinical benefit they're getting with a lot of their medications, right? So absolutely. And you know, if you one of the questions in your script asked about the the, the role of Botox, and if you look at Botox, it has an incredibly high placebo effect. And I have to be honest, and if somebody's going to stick 20 needles in my head, I'm going to want to believe it's going to work. Is that how many it takes for Botox? I didn't know oh, that. Oh, yeah. They get like 20. They get <laughs> That's amazing. Do they, do they like at least lose the wrinkles? Or is that <laughs> yes, extra? they do lose the wrinkles. All right. Mm. Um, but, you know, 
They also lose a lot of money. But, so maybe uh, being better looking treats migraine. Maybe that's the real. That's the there, there may be something to that. There are actually studies that suggest that Botox does help with depression. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, I don't know if it's because you don't have wrinkles and you look younger or if there's something about the chemical change. I, I don't know the, the rationale and they don't, they're, Botox is one of those drugs that it's really hard to figure out why it works in anything other than relieving wrinkles or muscle spasms. Uh, mm. And the rationale for why it works in migraine is totally unknown. Mm. Um, but again, it's very hard to distinguish between placebo effect and drug effect in the studies that have been done with Botox. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I personally am not a big believer in sending people for Botox therapy for their chronic headaches. Um, but there is no question that 20 injections to your head has a big placebo effect. And while we're talking about, um, you know, response to the different treatments and everything, are there any tools or scores that we can use to kind of keep track of um, how our patients are responding to treatment? As far as measuring how people do, this is really a really interesting area. I got involved in, in outcomes research because one day I was at a headache meeting and I thought I was a pretty decent headache doctor. I was at a I was at the Cleveland Clinic. I was the head of the headache section there. I'd done some research. And one of my colleagues stood up at a meeting and said, he helps 90%, 90% of his patients get better. And I sat in that room and I said to myself, there is no way that more than about 30 or 40% of my patients ever seem to get better. <laughs> and so it led me down the road to say, I, you know, what is he doing that I'm not doing? We're using the same drugs. <laughs> and it got me... <laughs> I mean, maybe he was doing other drugs. I thought you were going to say he, he's like a specialist in biofeedback and he's just hoarding it from everyone else. No, I mean, he just, you know, I know he had more ego than I did. <laughs> I would never have said 90% of my patients got better. But, you know, it got me interested in outcomes research and in looking at how we measure how people do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, there are many, many tools. There are a number of migraine indices, there's something called the HIT-6, there's migraine-specific quality of life instruments, there are generic instruments like the short form 36 that you can use to measure quality of life, and to be perfectly honest, probably the best measure of all is to say to your patient, how are you doing? And because the reality is, for every patient how it impacts their quality of life is really what counts with regard to their headaches. And I have, I have patients, I I know I'm going to be seeing this gentleman just this coming week, um, who has chronic cluster headaches. And when I saw him, he was having probably eight attacks a day and he was being awakened every night of his life. And he was absolutely miserable. Mm -hmm. Now he's having one or two attacks a day. They are, by his standards, relatively mild. He's sleeping through the night. He thinks he's in heaven. (laughs) I'm sitting here thinking, you have two clusters a day. I'm doing a terrible job for you. And he's he's as happy as he's ever been. He thanks me at every visit for how well he's doing. And I'm thinking, you have two clusters a day. This is terrible. (laughs) <laughs> so it's really, it's a matter of your perspective and he's functioning, he's working, he's sleeping, he's happy. Um, so maybe I should be happy for him. Yeah. Um, you know, I have other patients who come in and they say, Oh, I'm terrible. You know, I had one migraine in the last two months. It's like, you know, right. you come to the top of my list of patients who are doing great, <laughs> but you know, you missed somebody's birthday party. You missed a day of work. Uh, whatever it is, you know, it impacted your life in a negative way. And so I think we make a mistake sometimes when we try to quantify too many of these things. I really think it's really about asking the patient how they think they're doing. Um, Because, again, it's a very personal disease. And 
Some people are perfectly okay with having a lot of mild headaches as long as they're not having sick headaches that are putting them to bed. I have other patients who are intolerable of the fact that they have a little bit of headache every day. Um, and so it really just is, it's a very personal issue and it's really asking people how they're doing and, you know, how they feel about their headaches. And I think that somewhat begs the question, uh, what do you think about, about prophylaxis for migraine headache? I think there, I, I sort of have two rules of thumb. You know, one, we go back to the quality of life issue. Um, if the headaches are really impacting your quality of life, then you want to consider prophylaxis. I also think people who have more than two migraines a month, we ought to at least be offering them prophylaxis. Now, if you look at the different guidelines, and there are probably more than 10 different guidelines from a variety of different organizations and a variety of different countries, um, all of them have different qualifications for who should get migraine preventive therapies. Some places it's one migraine a week, some it's two a month, some it's just based on quality of life. Um, but the question that I like to ask my patients is, are you willing to take a medicine every day in order to have your headaches cut by 50%? Because if you look at prophylactic drugs, essentially for any given prophylactic drug, two-thirds of patients will have a 50% reduction in their headache frequency. So the real question to patients is, are you willing to take a pill every day to cut your headaches in half? If the answer is yes, then we pick a drug. If the answer is, gee, I really hate taking drugs, you know, I'd rather just take an abortive therapy when I get a headache, then that's usually fine. Well, how do you go about... Uh... So how do you tailor the, the prophylactic therapy to a given patient? Like what are, what are maybe the first two or three drugs you would think of, of, of choosing for a given person? Well, let me go through a longer list, if you will allow sure. me. Sure. Let me, let me go through my list of prophylactic drugs for migraine. Right. The first point to make is that they all have about the same efficacy. Mm -hmm. So you don't pick a drug based on efficacy. Mm -hmm. You pick a drug based on side effect profile, and you pick a drug based on will it have some other effect on some other disease or condition that your patient has, mm -hmm. either positive or negative. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the older line drugs. Beta blockers have been around since 1969 for migraine prophylaxis. Um, beta blockers are cheap. They are generally very well tolerated. Um, since most of our patients are generally young and healthy, you don't really have to worry a lot about whether they have congestive heart failure, insulin-dependent diabetes, et cetera. I mean, you, you know the contraindications to beta blockers. You know, what I tell my patients is that about one person out of 100 will find that it makes them fatigued, that some people will get colorful or vivid dreams. If they have asthma, this may make their asthma worse. And if they're an Olympic biathlete, these are considered performance-enhancing drugs. I've yet to find an Olympic biathlete in my practice, by the way. Um, but the first time I forget to say that is when I'll find myself. <laughs> um, very well-tolerated, once-a-day drugs. They work well. If you've got somebody with some hypertension or some essential tremor, uh, tachycardia, they're terrific drugs to use for that. Um, so I like to use beta blockers as, as first-line therapies. I, I like verapamil as a first-line therapy. There's sort of an old wives' tale that verapamil is better for people who have migraine with aura or migraine with com complicated auras like basal or migraine or some of the others. Um, I think that comes from the fact that in the old days, we believed that it prevented vasospasm. 
And although the neurologists now say that vasospasm is unimportant, they, they also turn around and say, yeah, but we want to use a drug that stops vasospasm for these diseases that now we don't believe cause vasospasm <laughs> related to vasospasm. And it still works. So I don't exactly understand their rationale, but I understand the, you know, the old time thinking about verapamil. And again, verapamil is a nice drug with the exception that it's constipating and it will cause some edema for patients. It may also cause some flushing. So some people tell you their headaches get a little bit worse uh, because they get flushing when they first start taking it. But again, it's well tolerated. We've been using it in migraines since the early 1980s. We're not going to get a lot of surprises with that drug. The tricyclic antidepressants we've been using since probably the early 60s. The downside of the tricyclics is they have terrible side effects. They (laughs) cause weight gain and they cause sedation. And we're dealing with a population that's largely young and female, and none of them vote to want more sedation and weight gain. so, you know, it's it's a bit of a problem. There are a lot of tricyclics. Some cause a bit less sedation. Some cause a little bit less weight gain. Um, if somebody has depression uh, or neuropathic pain in addition to their headaches, they're a good choice. The other advantage of tricyclics is they work well for both migraine and chronic tension type headache. So they have a very good niche. Sharing that niche and maybe a better step forward are the SNRIs, drugs like venlafaxine and duloxetine, um, are are useful, don't cause nearly the sedation and weight gain, uh, but they do have a withdrawal syndrome, so you have to be careful that your patients actually take their drugs and don't stop them abruptly. Uh, But those are a nice alternative to the tricyclics. Um, non-steroidals are great on a daily basis, except for the fact that they cause a gastropathy and most people can't tolerate them mm-hmm. long-term, but they can be very effective. And again, they don't cause sedation. They don't cause weight gain. Um, and for the most part, they're well tolerated. Does it matter if they're the selective, like the COX-2 ones or just the, uh, the like things like ibuprofen? Really, the ones that have tended to be... To, to be effective that we that we've used naproxen on a daily basis, not naproxen sodium, but naproxen. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to like a drug called fluorbiprofen, which we did some research on years ago, which is sort of the first cousin of ibuprofen, uh, which is also a twice a day drug. But the, the reality is probably any of the nonsteroidals will be effective as prophylaxis. The downside is I also like to use NSAIDs for abortive therapy, and so I can't use them as an abortive drug if I'm using them as prophylactic drugs. Um, And they're also great drugs for what we call mini-prophylaxis. So for women, for example, who have menstrual migraine, you can start a a nonsteroidal three days before the onset of menses through to the end of menses, and that can be very effective, and they don't have to be on preventives through the whole month. So I don't typically use non-steroidals on a daily basis for too many patients. Um, The next line of drugs, just to touch on, are are the anti-epileptic drugs, which are the ones that are probably most used by neurologists, and they're drugs that I personally think are pretty awful for migraine. (laughs) Um, The the first one that we'll talk about is valproic acid or Depakote. Um, You know, side effects are weight gain, uh, alopecia, uh, can cause liver problems, can cause pancreatitis. It's a class X teratogen, sort of the perfect drug not to give to a typical migraine patient, a woman in childbearing, mm-hmm. because they don't want to get bald and fat and not be able to have children. <laughs> um, so, you know, not, not a really great choice, but it is effective, and it's FDA approved for migraine prophylaxis. And then there's topiramate. Topiramate has really just one major problem, and that is that it makes people stupid. I've heard that. Oh, it's true. And if you ever ask patients who are on it, they will all tell you absolutely this drug makes you stupid. 
I have to be honest and tell you that people seem to be able to get stupid enough without me having to add to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always said that, you know, if I have a patient who is like so incredibly intelligent and needs to dumb down so they can watch Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> maybe I'll give them topamax. <laughs> but beyond that, I really am very hesitant to use this drug. I mean, I've had medical students who come in and say, you know, I'm doing great. And then my doctor put me on this drug. You know, now I'm barely getting along. You know, I've had accountants say I can't add numbers because I'm on this medicine. Uh, I really think that anybody who has to do any kind of thinking for a living, which is really most everybody, <laughs> probably shouldn't be on this medication. The, yeah. the flip side is that people lose weight on topiramate. Uh-huh. And so everybody comes in, they've gone and they've consulted with Dr. Google, and they say, oh, this drug's going to cause weight loss and stop my migraines. Can you give me this drug? And it's like, you lose weight because you forget to eat. <laughs> you know, You're so stupid. slow. You know, for some people, they would rather be thin than intelligent, and, you know, they win the battle sometimes, and I'll, you know, and they get the drug. But I really, I really have concerns about the cognitive impact of, of topiramate. Um, you know, in very low doses, it's not too bad. And so I, you know, I will use it on occasion, but I really think it's, it's way overused without people really considering uh, the impact that it has on people's cognitive uh, ability. And because the patients really all will come in and tell you how difficult it is for them to think on this medicine. So, you know, th those are sort of the choices and those are sort of the things I tell my patients about the different medications. And, you know, you, tr you, you pick and choose amongst what's, what's there, again, based on do they have another disease where, you know, it makes sense, are they depressed, so maybe you want to use an SNRI or a tricyclic, do they have hypertension where you might want to use a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker? You know, th there are niches, and otherwise it really comes down to side effects. Mm -hmm. And anything to this, uh, uh, some some patients have mentioned Butterbur. That's uh, I know yeah. there's some concerns about hepatotoxicity with that if you get, if you get a and bad that's formulation. Why I won't use it. In, okay. In, in Europe, there, there, there really has been a huge issue with hepatotoxicity and mm. actually um, malignancies, liver cancer. Oh my gosh! Related to the use of butterbur, and the problem with supplements is they are unregulated and essentially unstudied. So, you know, when somebody says, "Well, in Europe, you know, the product is bad," but this is America, and you know, we think our product is great, um, but it's unregulated. You can't convince me to use Butterbur. I'm, I, I just, you know, won't use it because I'm very concerned about using supplements um, because they are not regulated. There are a couple of exceptions, and I, I should throw out a couple of exceptions. There was a recent paper uh, out of Harvard that used the combination of simvastatin, 20 milligrams twice, uh, I believe it was 20 milligrams twice a day, plus... Uh, 1,000 units of vitamin D twice a day. Oh, yeah. And they had very good efficacy with it. And you're talking about very benign drugs that have other beneficial effects. Um, so there is a place where, you know, vitamin D is a supplement. I, would, I am willing to prescribe that combination to people. Although I have to admit, looking at the pharmacology of the two drugs... I don't know why they came up with a BID dose, so I use it as a once-a-day 40-milligram simvastatin, mm -hmm. 2,000 of um, vitamin D. But again, even with the vitamin D, I encourage my patients to only buy brands that have the United States Pharmacopeia shield on the label so that mm -hmm. they actually know they are getting you know, what it says on the bottle. Uh, so, I, so even there, you know, I, I do try to warn them about their use of supplements. And how do you, how often are you changing the doses or, or following these people up once you start someone on any sort of prophylactic medication? Ideally, I like to see people back in about a month after they start on prophylaxis. Most of these drugs take about a month to start working. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, ideally, I like to see them back in about a month, maybe six weeks. Uh, and then we'll make some adjustments with the medication. Then I like to go out maybe two or three months if they're doing okay. Um, and then really the hardest part, as far as I'm concerned about managing the migraine patient, is the patient who's doing well and how you get them off their medications. Um, you know, the books are all really good to talk about titrating up and adjusting doses. What nobody seems to ever advise is how do you get them off the drugs once they're doing well? And I don't know quite what the timeline is there. What I, I sort of like to go back to the, are the headaches worse than taking pills every day? You know, if somebody's not having adverse effects from their medications, and the medications are not terribly expensive. Um, I really don't have a problem with leaving somebody on their medications for long periods of time, particularly if they had pretty bad migraines to begin with. Um, you know, and if somebody really hates being on medicine, I like them to go somewhere, and then I like about six months of doing well and then starting to taper off medication. Mm-hmm. Because I, I do believe that this is a cyclic disease and that once you sort of break the cycle and people are doing well, you can get them off their medications and they will continue to do well for generally some pretty good periods of time. So I'm not, a, you know, I, I'm happy to try to get people off their medications if they're willing to do it. And again, there are sort of two types of people, those people who... You know, their migraines were miserable and they never want to stop their medicine because of fear of going back to being miserable. And people who absolutely hate putting pills in their mouths and, you know, once they have their first good day, they want to stop their medicine. Um, So you you sort of, you know, work with your patients as individuals. But ideally, I like for somebody to be doing well for at least three and ideally maybe six months before we start tapering them off their medicines. And and I found in practice that a lot of patients, they've maybe been tried on something and they'll tell you, oh, I tried that, that didn't work. But when I really dig into it, it, it they, they didn't really give it like a good one, two or three month trial. And, uh, and, and maybe they just kind of stopped it after a week or two. So yeah. I, and I see that all the time. People take a couple of doses, they, or they were underdosed on their medication uh, they had very low doses. They took it for a few weeks. They didn't get better, so they stopped. Yeah, you, you'd like for people to at least be on a, a one-month trial at therapeutic dose before mm-hmm. you call a drug a failure. And uh, do you end up using, uh, on average, what do you think? Like, does it the first try or the second or third try? Like, how many how many drugs per patient are you kind of going through before you hit on one that works? I won't say I'm. I used to say I was amazed when the first drug worked. Now okay. I guess I, 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 will, I will no longer say I'm amazed at it. I'm just always very pleased when the first drug worked. Okay. I, I would say that it's not uncommon to go two drugs. Now, I will also tell you a lot of my patients, because I'm in a, a referral practice largely, or a, you know, a subspecialty practice, many of my patients have been on a lot of drugs uh, by the time they've come to see me. So I don't oftentimes have as many choices Mm -hmm. uh, without going back on things they've already taken. Um, But it's not at all uncommon to have to go through two or three different drugs to find the right medication. Um, You know, on a good day, the first drug works, but um, one should not get disappointed if they have to go to a second or third choice before they see success. Okay. And, um, I, I do want to, uh, I know we're taking a lot of your time here, so I do want to just touch on briefly prophylaxis for tension type headaches. Yeah, that's a real short subject. So it's okay. Good. All right. Uh, <laughs> Cause I can't are, think of much. There are three classes of drugs that, that there is modest evidence for benefit. Uh, there's the muscle relaxant tizanidine. There is one very small study that suggests tizanidine can be effective for chronic tension-type headache. The tricyclic antidepressants have been used. Uh, I would extend that to the SNRIs, and I would tell you duloxetine and venlafaxine probably work as well as the tricyclics. Um, 
I will also make the point that the SSRIs probably are totally ineffective for pain conditions. Uh, and non-steroidals you can use for chronic tension-type headaches. So there's really three classes of drugs. Most people are afraid of non-steroidals because of the stomach upset. So you really have your choice of, of antidepressants or tizanidine. Right. Um, and, and with the NSAIDs, we also... Uh, I- Generally, uh, we're seeing a lot of, in our clinic, we see a lot of elderly and, uh, there's a cardiovascular risk there and a lot of them have CKD. And so those are, so there's some other. Yeah. In in older patients, they're not a really good choice. Mm -hmm. The truth is even in younger patients, they're not a really good choice. And a lot of our patients are using NSAIDs as their abortive therapies. You know, they're popping ibuprofen, uh, as their pain medication. So I really think you're sort of stuck between the, the, antidepressants and tizanidine for most people with chronic tension type headache. And, you know, as we're talking about like the ibuprofen and NSAIDs, any, uh, any thoughts on medication overuse, headache, analgesia induced headaches, et cetera? Yeah. I I have a lot of thoughts on that. (laughs) Uh, my, My first and main thought is it is way overblown. Okay. There, there is no doubt that there are certain medications that if you take them chronically and you stop them, there is a withdrawal effect. And the withdrawal is manifest in two ways. There is an exacerbation of the condition for which you're taking the medication. So if you're taking it for headaches, your headache gets worse. And the second manifestation is anxiety as part of the withdrawal phenomenon. So people start getting edgy and jumpy, and if they take another dose of that medication, it takes the edge off. Um, so yes, there is you know there is withdrawal phenomenon, but that every medication in the world causes medication rebound headaches. There are millions of people who take nonsteroidals every day for arthritis, and they don't get headaches. There are millions of people who take acetaminophen every day for arthritis or other pain conditions, and they don't get headaches. So I think that many of the common medications that we use that we blame for medication overuse headache probably don't cause overuse headache. Certainly, ergots do it. Butalbital, as in Fioracet, does it. Opiates do it. Benzodiazepines do it. So there are certainly a number of classes of drugs that have withdrawal phenomena. Triptans probably do it. But I don't, you know, the, the studies are pretty good that you can take a nonsteroidal every day as a chronic headache sufferer, and you'll get a reduction in the frequency of your headaches. I mean, we use these drugs for prophylaxis. So to turn around and tell me that taking ibuprofen every day gives you medication withdrawal headaches when the studies show that it reduces the frequency of headaches, it's, incongru- it's incongruous. It doesn't make sense. So, again, I think that there are a lot of docs out there who like to blame their patients because we don't have good therapy. <laughs> but I don't think the answer is that everybody has medication rebound headaches. People take medication because they have headaches every day. And if you get rid of their headaches, they stop taking their medication. But medications that have withdrawal phenomena, yes, there is no question you can get rebound headaches from triptans, ergots, opiates, benzos, butalbital, etc. Do you give any counseling when you give someone a triptan? Like, don't take this more than 10 days a month. Uh, that's something that I've seen seen people do. Yeah, ideally with almost any abortive, you want to tell people no more than two days out of a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out to around 10, so that, that's about right. Mm-hmm. I, ideally, you like to see no more than two times a week. The, the thing you want to be careful about is there's nothing worse than having a patient have a medicine that they know is really effective, but they, they're afraid to take it because they have some event on Friday and today's Tuesday, and so they're going to suffer all day today because they're only allowed twice a week. So, you know, I, I do try to reason with my patients and tell them, um, you know, ideally it's twice a week, but if you're having a really bad week and you take it three times, you know, maybe you can take it once a different week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think taking it three or four times in a week is some terrible sin. 
uh, and I'd rather have people get relief than be miserable. So I think you have to be careful about not being too strict, but sort of make it more of a guideline than a law. Okay. Excellent. So, I mean, this has been fantastic. Uh, I thank you so much for your time here. So, Oh, my pleasure. All right. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cue the theme music. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find the show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, and don't forget to leave us a review. This helps others discover the show. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Tony Sideri. I've been Dr. Matthew Otto. I'm Stuart! <laughs> <laughs>